Amen. So today's message is entitled, The First Noel. That's about as original as vanilla ice cream. I know, I know. But um, how early in your life was it that you heard the Christmas story for the first time? What, five? Maybe younger? How old was it when you first actually comprehended the whole of the story? You know, we, we hear stories and we celebrate things, but sometimes we don't fully comprehend them. Well, the first Noel is an important time. It's a historical time. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture that we walk all over this time of year, and then we should. But it is my opinion that far too often those of us in the faith, and especially those of us that are a little, shall we say, seasoned in the faith, can become a little too familiar and we just, we read it and we think on it, but we just kind of, okay, yeah, I know that. So today it is my goal for us to just stop down and think about this a little more deeply. And so I, I hope that you'll enjoy this. So our free stuff today is this. We have not always had the word Noel in our Christmas celebration. The word Noel is not actually a biblical word, so I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't use it, Chuck. What do you think? But Noel uh, is borrowed from the French. Uh, it can be traced further, uh, further back into the Latin, and which means birthday. Uh, Noels, which I'm assuming were birthday songs. This was, of course, before sombreros, <laughs> bad singers, and free desserts. But it was uh, way back in history, this would be the birthday song that they would sing. Uh, and we can, it was uh, started to being used in Christmas carols in the 18th century. And the early use of the word Noel to mean Christmas can be found as early as a 14th century text. So it's been around a while, but it, they weren't singing the first Noel at Jesus' birth. But uh, there you go, a little bit of history, didn't cost you anything extra. Now you can, when you're singing that, you can go, hey, did you know? So, and uh, we, we took it from the French like we did French fries. <laughs> so the first Noel, I've got four points for us today. The first Noel, the prophecy. Now this is something that if you have been in the faith or around the church for a while, you will have heard, but let's. Let's begin to unpack this, shall we? Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now that phrase, good news, is where we get our word gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Do you enjoy good news? Amen? Do you ever watch local news or national news uh, or international news? And they, they have a, a, a good story, just a, a, a real, you know, like puppies and kittens. And, and you're like, oh, man, I'd watch new, you know, all the time. Why don't we do more of that? Well, I don't know why we don't. I guess that's why they made, you know, video clips. But here Isaiah is saying, first and foremost, God has anointed him. God has set him apart. God has given him the authority and the privilege, responsibility for proclaiming what? The good news. Just like we are today. He has sent to bind up the brokenhearted, 
What? They had brokenhearted people in the time of Isaiah? Uh, yeah. We didn't just find out about this now that we have the internet. You know, we, we found out that the whole world seems half brokenhearted all the time. But to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives. Do you, have you ever been bound up or owned by something that you needed to be freed from? Does our world need to be freed from something today? I think so. And to release from darkness for the prisoners. We are all prisoners to sin. We're born that way. But thank God for the good news. We didn't have to stay that way. Our friend, our brother in the faith, Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, recorded these words some 700 years before Christ. 700 years, not to be mistaken with the 700 club. All day, all day. Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah gives this to the people of God, and it's called the Word of God. Under the authority of God. Now, 700 years is a long time. It's interesting to note that the Gospels quote more of Isaiah's writings than from any other Old Testament prophets. Also, uh, Isaiah is recognized as a great prophet in both the books of Kings and Chronicles. It's also probable that he was a priest. His calling from God took place in the temple where only priests would be. So this man, Isaiah, not only was a Hebrew, not only was called as a prophet, but was very likely a priest who served in the temple. So what we know is this man would be well educated in the word of God. Amen? And God had called him and set him apart for a very special delivery. Some 700 years you think Amazon would be in business if you swipe to the right and said, buy now, and they'll go, we'll see you in 700 years. I'm a junkie for the swipe right by now. I mean, it, it's glorious. We live in a glorious time. Isaiah 7 says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, in that 700 years, do you think one or two babies were born? Yeah. yeah, probably. You think one or two baby boys were born? Yeah, probably. And the word virgin can also mean handmaiden or a young lady. Well, there were probably a lot of young ladies who gave birth in that 700-year span. But Isaiah says God's got a, a special marker, <coughs> something special that you need to look for. To fulfill this. So let's look. Promises made. God's promises, uh, God's promises were, okay, self-correct, you stink. God's promises were made to anyone. Isaiah's promise of a Savior to be born is valid to anyone that will listen, that will believe, and that will receive. It wasn't just to one people group. It wasn't to just one economic group. It wasn't just to the spiritual elite. This promise 
was to any and everyone who would listen, believe, and receive, just like the gospel today. Amen? The promises of God are available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, for any reason, if they'll listen, believe, and receive. Hold on just a second. I'm going to have the courage to finish this. <clears throat> His promises were not revealed immediately, but it did not make them untrue. Amen? Isaiah gives this prophecy that doesn't unfold for some 700 years, but it didn't make it untrue. One of the challenges we face when we're reading Scripture and the promises of Scripture is we think everything must happen inside our time frame. The challenge is, first, is time is a construct of man. Second, God never says he's obligated to work inside our time frame. And third, just because his promise doesn't occur in our lifetime doesn't mean it's not true. There were people for 700 years looking for the birth of Jesus who did not witness it. There are people in this room who are looking for the rapture of the church. Amen? But we may not see it. But just because I don't live to see it, if that's God's will, doesn't mean it's not true. And then there's a world who would taunt God and go, you've been saying that judgment is coming. You've been saying there's a second coming of Jesus. You've been saying for thousands of years, we don't believe you. Doesn't mean it's not true. The second is the purpose. We see the prophecy. Isaiah told them what was going to take place. Now the question is why? <coughs> you ever ask someone that question? Why would you do that? Has anyone ever asked you that? Why'd you do that? Have you ever asked yourself? Why'd you do that? That's the worst one because when you ask yourself and you go, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, when it's such a bad decision that you can't even say, well, it seemed good at the time. <clears throat> you know, why did you eat that dozen donuts? I don't know. <laughs> Just, you know, you know, that sweetie's glazed donut the more you eat, the more you want. And, you know, if you start off with a hot one and you just work your way through it, it I don't know, momentum, I don't know. I have not eaten a dozen donuts, by the way. That's just a theory. <laughs> just, th just throwing it out there. All right, can you imagine? I'd fall over and my eye would start twitching. <clears throat> the purpose of the first Noel is this, simply the delivery of the embodied God in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. If you recall, a few weeks back, Brother Chuck in his message so aptly pointed out that many of the encounters between God and his creation happened on an intermediary location called a mountain. But this time, my friends, God came all the way down and he stayed. Amen? He didn't just pop in and go, hey, by the way, he came and he stayed and he wrapped himself in flesh and he laid aside privileges and he laid aside all the trappings of his deity that he might dwell among us. The incarnation 
is unique unto anything else our world has ever experienced. Why the first Noel? So that God could live among us as a man, a holy man and holy God. Never done before, never done again. The first Noel is unique because this gives us the indication of how far God was willing to go to have interaction and relationship with us. Isaiah says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In this moment of incarnation, Jesus Christ had these things put upon him. First, unto us a son was given to us. I, the, the word thee is my addition. The son. Because there's not another one. There wasn't one before. There wasn't one alongside of. And there's not another one. There's just one. And Jesus is the son. That was given to us. Whose son was given to us? God's son. Not just any son. All sons are precious. Amen? Well, but we can drive you crazy. There's nothing, nothing to drive a, a mom more crazy than a boy. Ladies, can I hear you? I mean, I don't know. I'm not confessing anything. I'm just saying. But God gave to humanity... His son in a way that did not have to transpire. It said, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus is responsible for the government of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, amen? He is responsible. He is the head of the governance of the church are on his shoulders. We just sometimes do a better or worse job being under shepherds. But it is on his shoulders. The, the earthly kingdom, the, 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 the millennial kingdom authority and governance will be on his shoulders. At the birth of Jesus, there was a lot of responsibility placed on those small shoulders. A wonderful counselor. Have you ever gotten bad counsel? Have you ever given bad counsel? On purpose? Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> I felt bad afterwards. A wonderful counselor. My friends, if you need guidance, go to Jesus. If you look all through the pages of Scripture, nowhere do you ever see where Jesus gave bad counsel. Now, he gave counsel that people ignored. He gave counsel that people construed. He gave counsel that people didn't want. But he's a wonderful counselor. An everlasting father. What does that mean? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I got, I got to tell you, in a world where the only thing consistent is change, it's nice to know there's something that is everlasting and unchanging. Amen? You guys are probably deep into Christmas movies, right? Do you guys, some of you, some of you, like most of you right here, you remember back when if you were going to see Santa Claus is coming to town, 
you had to be by the TV at 7.30 on Tuesday, on December 17th, or guess what? See you next year. You remember that? You get the TV guide and be circling it. Well, then they came out with this beautiful thing called a VHS. You could set it to record it, and then if you were really wealthy, you could own it. And you thought, I'm going to have this tape forever. And then they came out with a thing called a DVD. And because you couldn't be like the guy next door watching VHS, we all got DVDs, and we go, we're going to have these forever. Well, now, guess what? How many of you have DVDs that you never crack? Because it's all digital on demand. That's right. Hey, everything in our world changes except Jesus. Amen and amen. And then the Prince of Peace. This goes without saying, but you know me, I never leave that to chance. If our world wants peace, true peace, lasting peace, residing peace, heart healing peace, peace of mind giving peace, it's only found in Jesus. Church, the only way you and I find the peace that our heart so desperately wants is not through the government. It's not through the internet. It's not through giving and receiving of gifts. As great as that is, what we desire can only be found in the incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ. Period. Now, if we will seek that and we will dwell in that, it has a multiplying effect. It'll multiply in your life, and it'll multiply in the lives of others. The Prince of Peace was brought to us in the first Noel. Third, let's look at the place. Now, a little elf told me that you guys like to travel, and you like when I invite you to travel. So this morning, let's read Micah 5.2. This was a peer to Isaiah, and he says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the, day, from the old and from the ancient of days. So God made a promise that in Bethlehem, this little place. Now, it hasn't always been just a little place. Bethlehem is known as the city of David. This was the home of David when he was anointed king. And if you're not familiar with who David is, if you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, this is that David. He would become king. The name Bethlehem means the house of bread. Now, this is a suggestion because it's in such close proximity to the bountiful part of Israel uh, for foodstuffs, and that's true. But I also find it interesting that Jesus would say this of himself. John 6 says this, And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Isn't it interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread? You s or maybe it's just me. It's okay. I don't mind driving alone. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now this isn't talking about a spiritual thirst or hunger because 
It's talking about a spiritual need. Isn't it interesting that 700 years before it transpired, the prophets Isaiah and Micah tell us not only who and how, but where, and that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. Coincidence? I think not. Naomi and her husband and their two sons lived in Bethlehem before they moved to Moab during a famine. It was to Bethlehem that Naomi returned after the passing of her sons and her husband with her son-in-law, Ruth. So when you read the letter of Ruth, the book of Ruth, they come back to Jerusalem. What a beautiful story that is. The city of David became, uh, excuse me, the city of David, Bethlehem, became a symbol of the king's dynasty under Solomon, which is uh, David's son. And later, uh, it became an important strategic location. It's not that now, but it was then. So I've taken the opportunity. Let's all just close our eyes just for a moment and take a deep breath. We're going to take a trip. I've already secured all of your digital passports, and, and we're going to take a real quick trip. We don't have time to linger because the hour grows short, but we're going to take a quick trip and, and let you see the place that Jesus made so famous. Okay, open your eyes. So we... We climb on a plane and we've flown to New York and we've bounced out of New York after having a slice of pizza and we've cleared security. And we've flown over the North Atlantic. Some of you sleep, some of you don't. Some of you wish you could and you look like you didn't. <laughs> we arrive and uh, we collect our bags and we climb on a train. It takes us about an hour to take us up the mountain to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, we catch a bus over to Bethlehem. We only have to go through one armed security gate, but it's not too bad because it's late. And when we arrive, your hotel room window looks out upon this, the ancient city of Bethlehem, as it sleeps and how you desperately want to sleep. Now, I might tell you, you probably should stay up and just fight through it try to get on cycle, but you won't listen to me, and that's okay. So the next morning, we awake, and after a short walk from our hotel, we find ourselves at the Church of the Nativity. It's very uninspiring. Uh, a lot of stone and, uh, you know, different things, and we may stop and have some falafel on the way. If you're with me, we would. And uh, we're standing here, and we're looking, and going, oh, okay, well, this must be the church because there's a steeple. Well, actually, we're going in that door way down there. You see that little bitty door? Well, that's the door we're going into. Now, this door is big enough for you to get into, except that you'll have to step over uh, a stone in the bottom of the door, and you'll have to bend over to keep your head from the top of the door. Now, it has historical significance, but I won't dwell into that. But what it also does is it causes us to physically humble ourselves before the altar of God as we enter. Now, when we arrive, we hope and pray that it would look like this. Because it usually looks like this. And we have a chance to look around and, 
and, and, and see these things. But we're going to make our way down to the front, in front of the high altar, this high altar. Now, don't worry. I know it's hard to believe, but I know somebody. Because if we're in that crowd, for you to get down to see the manger, it's going to take some hours of standing. Oh, but I know somebody. And we're going to sit in these chairs right here in front of the high altar until that somebody goes. And we're going to go right around to the right of the high altar. And there you will see this sunken staircase. And we're going to line up one by one at a time, and we're going to make one long line down these staircase. And at the bottom of the staircase, you're going to find a cave. And you're going to look around and you go, well, this doesn't look like a manger at all. I don't even know how a cow would get down those stairs, much less get back up. You would. But when we arrive, we realize that we're in a place that history and tradition says is the very place where Jesus was born. And then underneath is this symbol. And this symbol in Latin says, tells you this is the place where Jesus is born. Now you can kneel down and put your hand on it if you want. Some choose to kneel down and lean up underneath it and, and kiss it. That was my choice. And you might even say, well, this isn't anything like my mind's eye shows me, but that's okay. You have to remember, it's been a few days. But if history is correct, you are in close proximity where the first Noel transpired, where God entered in to the company of humanity. And so for the rest of our time together, I'm going to ask you just to take a seat. There's plenty of room down here, believe it or not. Just We're going to take a seat, and we're going to finish our time together very quickly. Bethlehem, while diminished in importance to a humble village, remains distinguished above all the biblical cities and of all the places as the place where our Savior was born. So now let's take a quick, a quick look at the people. Matthew chapter 1 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here we have two very probably teenagers whose families have arranged their marriage. Now it's funny about arranged marriages. In America, we just would never hear of it. It's an American thing, but it's not the way it is everywhere. Parents get involved, families get involved. But this marriage was very likely arranged by the families. There's some, <laughs> there's some business dealings also in this arrangement. But these two have been betrothed to one another, and, <clears throat> uh, and they may have been betrothed to each other even years earlier. It doesn't have to be a, a, 
a new thing. So they're, they're going to be married. But the engagement will last probably a year at minimum. Could be a year and a half. But these two are as committed to being uh, a, a couple as if they're already had the service. We see a word used, betrothed, instead of promised. Two different words with two different significances. <clears throat> a Jewish couple could be promised to each other, but you could walk away from the promise. Did anyone here give or receive a promise ring when you were younger? Oh, and he did it. <clears throat> oh. Ronnie, can you come get the bear trap out from around my ankle? All right. Business meeting, 1130, marital counseling, 12. But if they were promised, it was an easy exit. And let me just say this. Let me say this to our youngers. Listen to me. When the time comes and there's that significant other, and you're talking about marriage, you have to be all in for all of your days. We don't, you don't take this covenant lightly. Man, listen, every person I marry, the day of the wedding, I stand in the room with that groom-to-be and I tell them, it's cheaper to leave now than it will be in 30 minutes. And I asked him, I said, listen, are you all in? This isn't a game. This, this, I mean, this is serious. Now, I haven't had anyone take me up on it yet. <laughs> That's going to be a day. Well, I, let me call somebody. Hey, Susie. Yeah, I've got Steve in the car. Uh, yeah, about the wedding. Anyway. But to be betrothed. You're all in. It's a binding contract. There's no walking away. Among the ancient Hebrews, the betrothal was spoken of as a covenant. And they take it from this passage in Ezekiel. <clears throat> Ezekiel pictures God as marrying Jerusalem. And the following words are used of her. I gave, excuse me, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. I, I can't think of anything that says what my heart is 35 years ago for my bride and what my heart says today for my bride than that right there. So we see that this relationship was in a place of significant responsibility and commitment. And Mary turns up pregnant. And that's problematic. And the scripture tells us that Joseph loved her. And he had to do what was right by the law. And there was a part of him, I'm sure, that wanted to do this. And you know, you have to think Joseph's family is weighing in on this, don't you? Because they were a part of arranging this marriage. There's a lot of opinions about what Joe should do. If he were to put her aside, that would include public shame. 
that could include her being put to death. That was the penalty of the law. It said that he loved her and he was trying to figure out a way to set her aside privately, quietly, with minimum impact. Our bride and groom-to-be are about to be placed in a very difficult position. I will say this. Following the Lord sometimes puts you in a sticky wicket. Following the Lord will not always be peaches and cream. Following the Lord sometimes is hard. Say that word with me. Hard. Hard. If you're only in it for the easy, you're not going to be in it for long. This bride and groom are about to be dropped in the grease. Let's see what they're going to do. The angel of the Lord came to Mary first. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel tells her that God has selected her to be the delivery system, as it were, of the Messiah. Now, what all qualifies her, I don't know. But God chose Mary, and I I feel this. This is my opinion. Make sure you understand what I'm about to say. In my opinion. In my opinion, Mary could have waved this off. In my opinion, don't fist fight me. But what was Mary's answer? You've heard me say, and let me say one more time, God isn't always looking for just the qualified, but he's always looking for the available. I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. What did this young lady know about being a mom? Zero. Oh, she's probably taking care of siblings and cousins. What does this lady know about what this could do for her social standings? Well, she probably knows a lot. What does this lady know about what this could reflect on her family? A lot. What does this lady know about what it could reflect on her future husband? A lot. This lady was in full understanding of everything except what what it meant to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. But she says, I am the Lord's servant. Amen? You see, sometimes we walk past this far too quickly. This young lady stepped off into the deep water. She was called to carry a a stone that she had no idea how big the stone was. All she knew was that in the moment, she wanted to be what God called her to be. In spite of what she knew. Now, it takes two to tango, otherwise you're just getting videoed. Her husband-to-be, Joseph, was put in a very difficult circumstance because (laughs) unlike Greenville, Texas, uh, 
in Israel at the time, people did a little tongue wagging from now, from now and then, right? Here's a man, his bride-to-be is now pregnant. Oh, did you hear what she said? Uh, it's the Holy Spirit's baby. You know they were tongue wagging. You know they were down at the synagogue going, did you hear about Joseph? You know it. Why? Because that's the way we are. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary says, Lord, I'm in. Now he has to speak to Joseph. And he says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Why? Because what's going on here has the fingerprint of God on it. She will give birth to a son and you will give him a name, Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Not only, Joseph, do you need to take this woman to be your bride, take her back to your family's home as you would, and when this baby arrives, you don't get to name him. The grandparents don't get to name him. Some app on the internet doesn't get to name him. Joseph, his name is Jesus, and that's what you'll name him. When Joseph awoke, he did what the angel had told him to do. And he took Mary as his wife, and he took her home. Now, you see, you can say you're in, but your actions always evidence whether you're in. And not only that, he did not consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Why? To make sure there wasn't anybody with any excuses. In the Christmas account, we see two individuals who chose to follow the Lord's word and will for their lives. Amen? <clears throat> they, they said yes. They said yes what? Independent of each other. I don't think they were texting. Hey, Mary, what do you think? Well, I don't know, Joe. I might be all in, but, you know, question face emoji. <laughs> do you know why? It's because a husband and wife have to be all in to the Lord individually before they can be all in to the Lord together. And I'm so thankful for my bride because she was all in with Jesus way before I was. And I'm thankful that God waited to let me get in. Their new family was dedicated to being disciples of God in spite of social pushback. You have no idea how hard this would have been on them socially. The personal discomfort... Or the uncertainty of not understanding every detail of God's plan. My friends, when Mary signed on to the contract, she did not fully comprehend what Easter would be. You see, sometimes the Lord says, you just trust me. On a spring night in 1987, when God rolled out the contract in my life, and he says, I want it all. Jimmy, I want it all. 
Will you give it to me? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't know what all meant because all I had was not much. But what I did know was with every fiber of my being, I wanted him to have it. And I don't regret a day of it. The first Noel is a culmination of sorts. Let's quickly look at these. First, of God's love, grace, and trustworthiness. God's love and grace was given to us in spite of us. And he's trustworthy. Why? Because he told us 700 years before he did it. Secondly, man's faith and obedience. Mary and Joseph had to choose individually and then together that they were all in with God. History's spiritual hinge pen. Listen, if there's no Noel, there's no Easter. And if there's no Noel, there's no Easter. If there's no Easter, there's no hope. Which brings me to my next. There's help for today. What kind of help? God is always with us. Just as God helped Mary and Joseph through theirs, God will help us through ours. God's help is here for us today. And lastly, God's hope for the future. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But the first Noel tells us who holds it. 700 years earlier, God held the first Noel. And he holds us too. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what next year holds. We don't know. But we know who holds it. And the question to us, just as it was to Mary and Joseph in the time of the Immaculate Conception, is this. Will we trust God? Will we go all in with God and for God? Will we be obedient even when it's inconvenient or it's unpopular or we don't know the outcome? My friends, the only answer that we should say is yes. Yes. We need to be all in. Why? Because at the first Noel, God proved he was all in on us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just say that you loved us. But Lord, you showed us in the incarnation of the Son of God. Father, you did it just exactly how you said you would do it. And you said at the fullness of time, at just the right time, you did it. And Father, today we celebrate that. And Lord, we confess that the whole world, including us at times, Lord, just run right by the nativity on our way to other things. But Father, help us to stop and to ponder as Mary pondered in her heart the things that you have said. God, this was a significant event with real human beings and real feelings of fear and uncertainty. Lord, these are people just like us who were called to live and to walk with you in a world that is uncertain. And Father, we confess, 
just like those who kind of stopped looking, kind of stopped anticipating, kind of became comfortable with a promise over 700 years. And there are those, Lord, that just simply missed it. Father, we have promises yet to be unfolded in our lives. Lord, you say in your word that there is a second coming. You say in your word that there is an accountability for this life. Father, what you say in your word is true, whether it transpires in our human lifetimes or not. And we're called to live to that truth, to be motivated by that truth, to be encouraged by that truth. Father, it is my prayer that beginning with myself, Lord, that the first Noel would stir deeply in me. Lord, that I will not think lightly on all that transpired, that we might sing the first Noel. Father, let our hearts soar with the joy of Christmas as we celebrate your prophecy and we celebrate your purposes. And as we celebrate your prophesied place, and Lord, as we celebrate your people, our people, our spiritual ancestors, Lord, who have beautifully shown us what faithfulness means. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things.